If you have your uh, material in Colossians, um, let me let me think with you about that and get that uh, get that started. Um, the notes on Colossians are quite detailed, uh, as you will see, and it'll be up to you what you do with them. It doesn't matter. I'm really interested in kind of tracing the argument of the book. Now, let me comment a little bit on just some introductory things. Let's go through this real quickly. There's a little map on page two, which just shows you, I put a big circle on it, where Colossi is. Let me just comment on that for a minute or two. The city of Colossae was a little bit, a little bit like a backwater town in a river valley, not very far from Laodicea, which I'm pretty sure you've heard of. It's one of the seven churches in, in the early chapters of Revelation. Paul never visited this city. Paul did not plant the church in this city. The city of Colossae had a a Jewish population, but not a large Jewish population. It was a typical Greco-Roman city. Uh, And all I mean by that is with the bathhouses and the theaters and the focus on on emperor worship and the focus on the Greco-Roman gods, you know, Jupiter and Venus and Apollo and all that other stuff. But Paul as I have under letter B there, Paul did not plant the church. You're going to see a name at the beginning of the epistle. Epaphras did. You'll see his name. He is also sometimes called Epaphroditus. He will visit Paul. We'll talk about that. Let me jump down for real quickly to letter D, the occasion of the epistle, and I'll come back to letter C. Paul is in prison this is this the book of Colossians is one of the prison epistles of Paul. He writes four epistles when he's in the Roman prison. You, and if you don't know what they are, it's Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. They're the four epistles he writes in prison. They're all written together in a very close framework of time. The occasion is Epaphras. You'll see him mentioned at the beginning of the epistle. He's in verse seven. Epaphras, the founder of the church, the leader of the church, comes to visit Paul in prison. And he tells Paul of a heresy creeping into the church. Which is why he chooses to write this letter. Again, I'll repeat it. He did not visit this church. As far as we know, he never was in Colossae. He did not plant the church. But because of Epaphras, his very close friend whom he may have discipled, he tells him of this heresy. So he fires off this letter. What is the heresy? Men, there have been books, doctoral dissertations, scholarly articles written on it, and there's no consensus on what it is. So if people are a lot smarter than I don't know what it is, what we do know is this, and this is the central point. This heresy diminished the person and work of Jesus Christ. This this heresy argued that Jesus is not God. This heresy diminished uh, Jesus in terms of his person and in terms of his deity. That much we know. Some of the other details are where you get into all kinds of challenges. 
So what's the thesis of the book of Colossians? Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And that's what he's going to prove to us. It's a magnificent little gem. It's one of the gems of the New Testament that's not often studied. It's short. I mean, it's not like Romans or, or even like, like Galatians or Ephesians, which is loaded. Oh, my goodness. Colossians is a little gem. Chapter 1 is a, one of the greatest theological summaries of who Jesus is. Chapter 2 is the practical, in terms of, of your thinking, the practical, out. if Jesus is Lord, what does that mean for me? It affects how I think, it affects how I live, it affects how I approach things in my life, and then the last uh, part of the book is a very practical set of implications about how we should live. So it's a, it's a great little book to study, and uh, Epiphras is apparently the bearer of the epistle. Uh, the author is Paul. There's hardly anybody except the higher critics who don't accept anything about the Bible that uh, would, would disagree. It is Paul who wrote this. He's in prison. It's written about A.D. 62. Paul's first imprisonment in Rome is in uh, 62, 63, and so on. You read about that at the end of the book of Acts. Where is he in prison? In Rome. If you ever go to visit Rome, they'll show you the prison where he was in prison. I'd love to take you on a tour of that. Should we get on a plane and go? Oh, believe me. My, I, get, I get such an itching to start doing my tours again, but uh, my wife keeps reminding me about my herniated disc. <clears throat> about my altitude sickness, and that I'm 72 years old. And I said, none of that has any relevance, son. <laughs> she really is disagreeing with me. So, All right. So who founded the church there? Epaphras. He himself is not just passing the heresy, but uh, or... Uh, no, he's not practicing the heresy. I know, but he's just concerned about the heresy. Well, he come to visit Paul to tell him about that, yes. But does it mention him? founding the church, or we just look at... Uh... Uh, it, well, in verse 7, as, as he talks about uh, Epaphras, you, the language he uses, kind of, and then at the end of the epistle, too, kind of lends us, this is the key guy who planted the church. It's an inference we're drawing, but it's a pretty, pretty sound inference that he is the leader, founder and leader of the church. It's a very young church, the one at Colossae. I mean, it's, it really is a young church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh -huh. Is this sort of a, um, a lab view of churches perhaps today? Maybe could be applied as what the certain churches today and the correct training that's needed to put them back? Yes, I've used it that way actually. Um, I did a, uh, at, at their request, I did a book study of Colossians because the church was having some real struggles within the church about uh, how to look at Jesus. They just couldn't, they, they were, some. this is an unusual church, uh, but some were saying Jesus is just a good teacher. I'm not sure why we have to spend so much time studying about him. I'm more interested in the traditions of the church, not about Jesus. 
And they asked me to come in, and I decided, because you know you only have a weekend, I decided instead of doing Romans or something like that or doing Hebrews, focus on something like Colossians. It's very short, pissy. It gets right to the heart. Here's Jesus. What are you going to do with him? That kind of, and so that's why I chose that. And it was really, it was for a lot of those folks, and most of them were untaught people, but it was the first time they had ever in their entire life been exposed to a doctrinal presentation of Jesus Christ. And that's, unfortunately, that's probably the truth in more churches than we realize. How many people today in 2019 in their churches have never been thoroughly introduced to a doctrinal presentation of who is Jesus? Not that, he, not that he died on the cross, not, and that's not what I mean. Who is he? How do I talk about Jesus? And not just a historical. Yeah, I mean, it's just Christianity is not just a bunch of traditions developed over 2,000 years that you do on a Sunday morning, because everybody always does it. Your parents did it, your grandparents did it, your great-grandparents did it, and you do it. It's about a person who changed history. Who is that person? How do I talk about him? Colossians does that for us. Anything else? That's I, it's a real quick introduction. All right? Let's dig into the book. Now, remembering everything I just said, one of Paul's prison epistles, he did not plant the church. He was never at Colossae, but he's concerned about the heresy. So he writes, I'm in verse 1, chapter 1, if you're following. Uh, and as you see this every time I give you notes, this is Chuck Swindoll's synthetic chart of Colossians, and they're in the public domain now, so I can, I did these when I was in graduate school, but his are so much better than mine, they really are, so you have a copy of it, I hope that'll be helpful, that's a, that's a way to grab a, a visual synopsis of the book, all right, verse 1, chapter 1, book of Colossians, everybody should be on the same page with that, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, let's stop right there. I want to review a couple of things. You should know this. Just review. Who is Paul? Tell me about him. Tell me what you know about him. Paul was a persecutor of the Jews. Who uh, well, uh, more of the church. As a Jew, persecuted the church. Yeah. Uh, right, right. Gotcha. Who, on his en route to further persecution, was stopped by... Christ, you know, he actually saw Christ. Good. Um, Good. Which qualifies him as an apostle. Good. So it changed his life, right? Okay. 180 degrees. 180 degrees. I mean, totally, totally transformed this man. He now has to embrace the truth which he rejected that Jesus is his Messiah. And so Paul spends 13 years from when he meets Christ on Damascus Road until the first missionary journey. In those 13 years, I think that's the transformational part of Paul's life. That's when he thought through theologically everything he writes about in his 13 epistles. The other, he, the other thing is that Paul was a, Saul was a, was a rabbi mm-hmm. uh, and had exquisite training. Good. Good. Gamaliel the first. Gamaliel the first, yep. Yeah. And, and so he knew... The Old Testament had. Very good. He knew what happened. Right. So he knew what happened that 
Good. What was Paul's title? God, Jesus Christ gave it to him. He's an apostle to the Gentile. He's an apostle to the Gentile. And uh, we didn't we study Acts in here? Yeah. Well, you know, the three missionaries journeys of Paul, which are recorded in, uh, for us in the book of Acts, he's taking the gospel to the Gentiles, to the Greco-Roman world. And so that's why he's especially interested. It's a Greco-Roman city. And everything he taught and everything he stood for is at stake here. So that's why he writes this letter. And as Fred correctly said earlier, because he met the resurrected Jesus Christ, he is an apostle. And he's an apostle of, now it's really interesting, you don't always see this. An apostle of Christ, Jesus. Christ is his title. He's the Messiah. Jesus is his name given to him by his parents. Jesus, in Hebrew it's Yeshua, in Greek, it's Jesus. What is it? What do both of those words mean? Okay, obviously you didn't hear that, so I'll repeat it. What does the name Jesus mean? Savior. Savior. Now, I... Thank you, Joe. You... <laughs> My heart was sinking. I was losing breath. I was about to faint. But you rescued uh, me from having a disastrous. No, but you you know this. I'm just reminding you of that. But Paul, when Paul says this, he's saying something very theological. I am the commissioned, sent out one with authority, which is what apostolon, apostle means. I'm a commissioned one sent out with authority of Christ, the Messiah of Israel, and Jesus, the Savior of the world. Now, I mean, so please, you know, let me embellish that a little bit, but just work through that. When he says who he is, he's identifying himself. Who am I? Who is this Paul? An, a, 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 an authoritative commissioned one sent out by the Messiah of Israel, who is the Savior of the world. That's what he's saying to them. Got it? Yes. Mine says, from Paul, chosen by God to be Jesus Christ's messenger. Okay. There he's just fleshing out what apostle means. But and and I know where that, why Ken Taylor's translating it like that. Notice what he says: an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Was that Paul's choice? He did not choose to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. As Fred was reviewing his life, Jesus Christ chose that for him. He chose Paul. He commissioned Paul. So when Paul says it this way, when he's identifying himself in this way, he is trying to establish, now this is a very important sentence, he's trying to establish for them his apostolic authority. Listen to what I'm about to say. Don't brush it off. Listen to what I'm about to say. And Timothy, our brother, Timothy is with him in jail. Not, Timothy is not in jail. He is with Paul because Paul is in a, in a quasi-house arrest kind of situation. So Timothy is, I'm going to really impress you, it's a great word. Timothy is his amanuensis. Isn't that a great word? I don't know. 
his secretary. He is taking the dictation of this letter. That's what Timothy is. Timothy is his young disciple. Paul did not lead Timothy to the Lord Jesus. Timothy's mother did. But Paul then discipled him. He took him on his missionary, two of his missionary journeys with him. Now, I hope you don't mind. I mean, that's a, the first verse. You usually skip over that real quick. Read it around. It's it. I don't want to do that. I want you to understand why that first verse is so important. Just a little aside about Timothy. But how Paul is identifying himself, it's really important. Because he wants to establish one central thing. I deserve your willingness to listen because I have apostolic authority. And with apostolic authority, it means he is speaking for the Lord. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, did you? I don't want to spend too much time on this, but did you see saints plural? The New Testament teaches that everyone who puts their faith in Christ is a saint. And so it's stating this. Um, he says that to the, to the Corinthians in, in, in a very clear, um, good, clear statement. Already talked about Colossae, where it is. You see it on that little map and so on. Now, uh, if you've been with me for a while, you've heard me do this. So I'm going to do it again. Here is Paul's typical greeting. Now, Fred wrote this, he thought I had no idea. This was the first date this class started nine years ago. Hmm. We just celebrated our ninth anniversary. That's why he, you all gave me a big thing of Reese's, which I'm going to hide as I take it into my house. Because <laughs> Peggy will be excited about that. She really will. Real what I might do, just what I might do, is take it to my office and then take two or three home each night. That's, <laughs> That's a good strategy. Yeah. yeah. That'd be pleasing to the Lord. <laughs> Thank you. That's why it would not be. <laughs> so what I'll do is I'll just boldly take it in and say, "Honey, I can't help it. It's just, I didn't have anything to do with this. Just pray. Would you please, graciously and mercifully, even let's pray about it. Let me bring these into our house." I think that verse 16 says to do good to share. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be wrong about that. <laughs> well, the thing is, Peggy, it, it, as hard as it is to believe, Peggy doesn't like Reese's. <laughs> I mean, I keep, you know, I keep trying to process that. Truth. How could anyone not like Reese's? Because in heaven, we're going to Now, listen. What he's doing is he is he is providing the Greek greetings. And the Jewish readings, which is highly unusual. You will search in vain. I mean, we have hundreds of thousands of letters in the ancient world. I mean, in archaeology, we just hundreds of thousands of them in all parts of the ancient world. If you're in, say, you find a cache of, of, of letters in Athens someday, what you'll see is the typical greeting is Chorus. which is great. You see somebody walking down the street in a regular <coughs> city, you say Chorus. Grace to you. Now it's kind of weird. We don't talk like that, but that's how they. It's a greeting, and you talk to a typical Jew in the ancient world or today. The very first thing they say, is Shalom, Jim. I mean, I have many, many friends in Israel because I've been there many times, and I get a lot of emails and letters and so on. 
Every, I don't think there's an email I have in my inbox that goes back for years and years and years from my dear friend. The very first thing they say, Shalom, Jim. That's just the tip of it. I mean, peace. But, you know, it's a very, very important part of how it. So what's Paul doing? Paul's combining these two. Because Paul's mission is primarily to the Gentiles. He's the apostle of the Gentiles. But every time he goes into the city, the very first place he goes is the synagogue. Present the gospel to the Jewish people. So, so he's combining these two, and it's a unique combination that I also think has theological content to it. God always deals with us in grace, and when we accept that grace, the result is peace. Peace with God, the peace of God. So, I mean, I, I just, I want you, I hope I didn't bore you with this, but Paul is doing something that's really unique. You will not find this in other letters of the first century. But you do find it in Paul. I think every one of his 13 epistles, this is how he begins the epistle. Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says it a lot of different ways, but it's always grace and peace. And so he's doing it here to establish what I just went through here in the last couple of minutes. I'm not, I mean, I'm sure No, no, that's well said, Jim. It's well said. You, you got, you got exactly. That's exactly what he's doing here. Mine is paraphrased and uses the term blessings. It says, "May God the Father shower you with blessings and fill you with great peace." So they kind of miss. He, it misses it. That's the problem, and not problem. That's the challenge of a paraphrase. Right. It's not capturing. And that, I mean, that's okay what Ken yeah. Taylor's doing there in the Living Bible, but it's it's missing the theological nuance of why he chose these two words and what Jim just said to really experience the rich richness as a believer of these two wonderful words of our faith, grace and peace. Now, you hear what Jim said. That was well said. He really captured that. Uh, yeah, yeah. So is it Timothy is the one who's writing and not Paul in this? Timothy is his amanuensis, his secretary. So he's, he's recording it. Mm-hmm. So Paul himself was not holding the pen. Uh, it's doubtful. It's doubtful he did. And that was a very typical thing to do in the ancient world. Yeah. Almost every writer, I mean, I mean, even, even uh, those in the lower end of the socioeconomic, you, you, usually, you usually had someone that wrote it down for you as your uh, as you're, sometimes it was because you couldn't read or write. You had an amanuensis. But it was usually, and there's another aspect of this, which I don't know, we can't really prove this, but there is some suggestion because of some things Paul says in Galatians that Paul's primary physical problem, what he calls his throne in the flesh, was an eye problem. He couldn't see very well. But we don't know that. For, that may not be the only reason. But that could be a reason why he always has a secretary. And in every of his letters, he mentions who the secretary is. Was Paul alive or even born at the time of Jesus during, 
Jesus. Uh, oh, sure. Absolutely. And we don't know, and he never mentioned what he was doing at that time. There is no evidence was he that... In Jerusalem? Was he in Well, see, that's... Rome? Well, uh, you know, as you know, he was from Tarsus, but... Because he is a, he says in Philippians when he's giving his autobiographical account, he says, "I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees." He was a Pharisee. Presumably, then he was on the Sanhedrin. So you know, but the Gospels are absolutely silent about Paul in terms of naming him. You know, in any way. But it's as this is an original thought with me. It's hard to believe that Paul. Assuming he was in Jerusalem, that Paul would not have been a part of the Sanhedrin that sought to condemn and murder Jesus. But he, he should have mentioned something like that if he felt, because you feel guilty about it if you are. So he well, he felt he's, 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 he's about he, you know, Christians and not being part of the sentence. That's, that's right. That's right. But I mean, we it, it, the scriptures are just absolutely silent on that, and you can't you can't make anything dogmatic. About it, you just but can't. He was alive oh yeah, he was definitely yes. Uh-huh. As a matter of fact, uh, Paul Paul would have been very close to the age of Jesus. Jesus' public ministry, he's in his thir- early thirties. When Paul comes to know Christ, uh, he's in his his mid thirties, so he's very close to the chronological age of Jesus. So Paul at this time would be sixty years old. Right. Yes, Paul, yes, in his 60s. Mm-hmm. Paul is executed in A.D. 68. That's when he is executed. No, he was executed in A.D. 68. So, yeah, uh, about six years later after he writes this epistle. So, um, you know, we're, we're, so we can assume Paul is probably in his late 60s or very early 70s when he's martyred. That's about as far as we can go. Can't go any was he aware of, of, of Jesus? Uh, I mean, did he actually see him? Um, there's, you know, well, he, he meets him in the Damascus Road, but before that, yeah, we. That's what I'm and I mean, it's part of what his question was too. We just we have no we have no evidence of that. It doesn't mean he didn't. It's just we don't have any evidence of that. As I said before, Paul was a Pharisee. He's on the Sanhedrin, unless he was out of Jerusalem in the four visits Jesus made to Jerusalem, it's very hard to believe that he would not have seen Jesus. But, I mean, we, we cannot make a statement. Yeah. Now, notice what he does here in, if you're in your notes. Um, uh, I, I, I talked about this. The entire first chapter is heavy doctrine. But before he gets into the doctrinal section, he does what he often does. He says something thankful about this church, and then he prays for this church. Now, we won't get to it today, so I'll wait till next week, but I'm going to give you a, this prayer that starts in verse 10. It just, uh, sorry, verse 9. This is one of the most magnificent prayers in the Bible. We're going to rip this thing apart next week and put it back together. But so I'll, I'll wait to distribute that till next week. But he begins in verse three through six with a statement of thanksgiving. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 
So what is he saying? As, let me paraphrase this, as we, meaning Paul, Timothy, and, and possibly Luke, others who are with him in, in his imprisonment, when we pray for you, the very first thing we do is we always thank the Father for you. This is a church that is dabbling in heretical teaching. That's confused about who Jesus is. It's being threatened by this, these false teachers. So what, what is he thanking God for? Look at verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So what key words do you see there? What are the three key words? Faith, love, and hope. The triad of the Christian faith. The triangle of the Christian faith. The three-part foundation of the Christian faith. I'm saying the same thing in three different ways. In other words... What he's saying, you know, every time we pray to the Heavenly Father, we always thank God for you, for your faith. Your faith in Christ Jesus. And assuming, and I think that's what it means, your initial faith, the faith of salvation, and your ongoing faith in Jesus. Faith the event, the point, faith, the process. So it's, we thank the Lord, we thank the Heavenly Father for your ongoing confidence and trust in Jesus. That's good. And the love that you have for all the saints. And so that faith in the Lord Jesus, both the faith in his finished work that you apply to your life and your ongoing trust and confidence in him results in the love that you have. But did you see something else he does here? He anchors this in their hope. You see how the ESV translates that? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Their faith and their love is energized by their hope. Laid up for you in heaven. <coughs> now, let's... Well, <coughs> my next class, I'm a little late. This is going to have to wait. Because I'm going to do it. Because I'm going to do it in a second sheet here. Yeah. If, I'm trying to structure this in a way that that you see what he's really doing here. <clears throat> the grammar of this verse is what I've tried, tried to show up here. The hope that you have laid up for heaven, that you have in heaven, what, what, what's the content of that hope? All that Jesus has said, his promises, his covenant, all that he promised me, he told me he's coming back for me, he told me I'm going to be a joint heir with him, I'm going to ruin reign with him, he told me he's going to prepare a place for me, all of those things, that's my hope. 
And there's an expectancy and a desire for all of this. Because I am an eternally focused person, eternally oriented. I'm thinking about eternity. I'm thinking about Jesus. I'm thinking about his promises. I'm thinking about all his covenant promises to me. He's going to fulfill it. That energizes. That motivates me to greater faith in him and greater love for people that are a mess. Did you get that people who are a mess? Did you know that people who are a mess? <laughs> people are a mess. Church is a messy place. Because it's all these, these people who are sinners and come to faith in Christ and bring all their junk to church. And then you and the pastoral staff have to deal with all that. You want them to grow in Christ. And you listen to what they're saying. You listen to their hardship. And you help them noodle through everything. That's faith and love. In other words, this is really important. I want you to think about this in your own personal life. The hope that you have in Jesus is to be deepening in your life. You should be more hopeful today than when you were 10 years ago. That, therefore, energizes your faith. Now, not your initial faith in Jesus, but your ongoing confidence and trust in Him and your love for people. That's what He's saying. And it, it's, a, it's a magnificent... It's a magnificent statement that if you read it quickly, you miss it. What Paul is intentionally doing in verse 4 is anchoring our energized faith and love for people in our hope that's focused on eternity, laid up for us in heaven. So, I mean, I just, I just want you to think about that in your own life. Why... Why be concerned about how you're living your life? Because Jesus said to me, I'm coming back for you. You don't know when, but be ready. I told you this. If you've been around here, you've heard me say this. My mom used to say to me, Jimmy, do you want to be doing that when Jesus comes back? You know, I mean, she's trying to just get me to behave because I was sort of a rascal. But But she's saying something that's really theologically true. The moment Jesus comes back, what do you want to be doing? Going about faithfully stewarding everything God's given you, whether it's your job, raising your kids, or whatever, that's okay. In dependence on him and trust in him and love, you're focused on today could be the day. Today could be the day. Jesus could come back today. That's how he wants us to think. Today could be the day. And so as you think that way, that then energizes a greater faith and a greater love. That's what Paul is saying. And this is what he's saying. We thank God because that's what we see in you people at Colossae. So despite all of these challenges, this was, this was good. This was good what he's seeing in these people. They're, they're growing and their hope in Christ is what is energizing a greater faith and a greater love for people. And Paul says, you know, this, this, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. You've heard about this. You responded to it. Okay, now, do you want to ask about this? This is really, I want you to think about that. Think about that in your own personal life. Is that true in my life? Because it is. Jesus said, I'm coming back for you. And here's all the promises that I'm going to fulfill to you when I come back. The New Testament says that should really energize us. That should really motivate us 
to greater faith and trust in him and greater love for people because when Jesus comes back, I want to hear him say, Jim, well done. And the Colossi people, some in, in a really amazing way, he's complimenting and thanking the Lord for what he sees. Well, uh, people are shuffling their paper. They've closed their Bibles. They've gotten their keys out. I think it's time for me to quit. So. See you next week.